We're feeling encouraged. Oh, one or two then. Good. Because God's the God of encouragement, isn't he? Ah, Should we go one a little bit further then? That's okay. I think my water is about to go a bit further as well. I'll put it down there. Father, in Jesus' name, we just thank you because you are a good God. And goodness pours out of you, and we thank you that every good and perfect thing we receive has come from your hand. And we bless you, Father. Will you please come and do more within us? Will you please dig deeper into us? And uh, will you release more healing and wholeness into every part of us? Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know Russ Parker? Oh, quite a lot of you. Okay. Uh, Russ was um, doing some stuff one weekend with me at Falderbrang. We had about 200 people with us. And um, we had a great Friday evening and a terrific Saturday morning. And then we had some free time, second part of Saturday afternoon and a meal. And then we were going to have our Saturday evening gathering. And I got the worship team together. We just had the most brilliant time. And I said, guys, I, I want you to take us further this evening. And they looked at me as though I was mad and said, what do you mean further? We've had the most amazing time. I said, yeah, but we've got to go further this evening. They said, we don't think there is any further. So don't, don't, don't worry. Let's pray and ask God to take us further. So we did. And uh, I, I think they thought I'd probably lost the plot because we had, had a marvelous time. So the evening came. Well, my goodness. I'm not sure that I've ever been in a time of worship like it. It was as, it's just amazing. And I can't even begin to, to describe it, so I won't start. But it was a bit like, no, I won't start. Okay. Um, it was incredible. It really was as though heaven had come to earth already. And then I looked, and there was a lady where you are, sir, just there. And uh, everybody was standing, uh, but she rather large lady, her face was bulging, her eyes looked as though they were going to pop out of her head, and um, her tongue was distended, and she was purple, and she really didn't look very good at all. And I was just about to go across, and there was a movement, and Russ had seen her just before me, and he went across. And I saw him just go like that to her neck and whisper something and walk back. And she just, and that was it. Um, but the worship was carrying on. It was the most fantastic time. And then I looked again and just noticed her standing. And her arms were up. Her face was radiant. She was worshiping God. And um, when the meeting was over, lots and lots of ministry at the end. But when the meeting was over, somebody said to me, did you notice that lady there? Yeah, I did. Uh, do you know she's a chronic depressive? She's been in and out of mental homes. God has, has really done something wonderful with her. That's great. Good. And he's done lots of other good things as well. Um, but in the morning, Sunday morning, what we do on a Sunday morning is we, we have a, a service of rejoicing and thanksgiving. We, we sort of conclude a weekend conference on the Sunday morning. And we have a little bit of a testimony time as well. And we really go for it. And then we go off and we have roast Sunday lunch together. And um, I was there fairly early to chat to the worship group, make sure everything was ready. But the first person who came in was this lady. And I looked at her and she was radiant. So I went over to her and I broke all my own rules. So I didn't know her from Adam. Well, I knew she wasn't Adam because she could have been Eve. But. Uh, so I walked over to her and uh, breaking all my rules, I, I said to her, you've obviously had a really good time with God. Oh, changed my life. I said, well, this is what I'd like to do then. After we've had the first hymn and the welcome and a prayer, I'm going to ask you to come up and I'm going to interview you. Now, the rule is, you never interview somebody unless you know what they're going to say. You never know, ask a question unless you know what the response is going to be. I didn't know this lady or her story. Uh, so I'll break all my own rules. I shan't do it again. 
And uh, she was okay, a bit apprehensive. A lady, I don't know, maybe 50 years old, something like that. Um, <clears throat> just thought, is this being recorded? You've got to say, okay. The, the little bit where I said she was a rather large lady, if that could be edited out, <laughs> I'd really be very happy. Um, and I said, we'll go on and worship from there because you, you'll help everybody to be encouraged because you obviously are so radiant. And uh, so I interviewed her and she sort of followed the line that I expected from what I'd, I, I'd just heard that... Um, she, she explained that she was always a depressive. She had many treatments to try and cure. Nothing would touch her. Nothing would help her at all. And um, when she was 18, on her own, she decided that she, these are her words, she was going to become a worshipper of God. So she went to her local church and started going every Sunday and has done ever since. Okay, so... 30-something years. And she said she always sat at the back so that nobody could see her because she knew she'd never smiled in her life, she said. And she knew how terrible she looked, couldn't do anything about it. She'd uh, voluntarily gone into a number of mental hospitals and they tried all sorts of drugs uh, and methods of curing her or healing her or whatever. Nothing ever worked. <coughs> and um, she'd never been able to worship in all those years. Because if ever she tried to worship, immediately she felt as though she was being strangled and was going to die. So she sat at the back so nobody could see, as she said, her face like the back of a book, a back of a bus. Back of a book. Back of a bus, and um, and the fact that she wasn't able to join in worship, she didn't want to depress anybody else, so she sat at the back. But she was there to worship, be a worshiper of God. She says, "I worshipped in my heart." She said, "But um, the previous evening, Saturday evening, she said, I have never been in a place where there has been such worship." She said, "I couldn't help myself. I just had to join in." She said, but the moment I started to lift my voice, I was strangled. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, Russ Parker came across to me and touched my neck and said something. Okay, what did he say? He said, in the name of Jesus, I'll release you from what binds you. That was it? Yeah. I said, and that set you free? Absolutely. She said, I, I then was able to pray and praise freely. And look at me, I'm smiling now. My goodness, she was. Her, her face lit the church up. She said, uh, I'm just so full of joy. Now, I, I said, my rule, you never ask questions where you don't know what the answer might be. So I said, so you must have had the most wonderful night. No, I've had the worst night. <laughs> There's 200 people there. Okay. Uh, that, that's our limit. That's how many we can, we can hold. So, you, you had a dreadful night, absolutely awful. Now, what do you do with that? This is supposed to be stirring people up to really go for worship. Okay, let, let's sing. And, uh, why did you have a dreadful night? Because God reminded me of the cause of the problem. Okay. What was the cause of the problem? He reminded me what I have fought so hard to defend myself against for so many years. She said, I don't know whether I was three, just coming up to four, or whether I just had my fourth birthday. She said, I remember being in my daddy's garage. And I remember the tremendous noise as the strange man was trying to smash his way into the garage where I was. And he smashed in and he got through and he rushed me 
uh, rushed to me and he grabbed hold of me and he cut me down from where my daddy had hung me by the neck from the rafters. <sighs> well, my goodness, you could... You could imagine what it was like in the meeting over there. And it, the story obviously doesn't go quite where you think it might be going. She said, apparently my life was just saved by seconds. She said, and then of course I've never seen my daddy since. She said, but I grew up as the little girl whose daddy tried to murder. She said, that's who I've been all my life. The little girl whose daddy tried to, to murder her. She said, and I've remembered it all so clearly. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep for grief. I want my daddy. Well, I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. Actually, this is about the third time I've told this story this week for some reason. And the first time that I've not struggled too hard to tell it. Um, but then the joy of saying, you know, the daddy that matters more than anything has been with you all the way through and is still with you now. And actually, the, the daddy whose love you need and whose reassurance you've always wanted, if your dad walked into the room now, would be unable to meet your needs. But God, your heavenly Father, is really the one you've not known, even while you've tried to worship him. And um, he can meet your needs. He's the one who can make you whole. And she was back with us about three weeks ago, just so full of joy. But you know, it's, she's grown from the age of about four years old through to maybe 50. And now God is working powerfully in her life. But if you've ever been in a place where you felt as though you're a little bit like an onion, you know, he's, he seems to have really sorted you out. And then you discover there's another layer to go. And you open that up to the Lord and think, phew, and then there's another layer to go. That's been her experience while she's being remade. And I can tell by your faces that some of you know exactly what that's like. Because he doesn't finish with us. And guess what? He's not going to finish with us until we see him face to face. And that's when he completes the work. No shortcuts. We're on a journey of transformation. We're on a journey of healing. We're on a journey of adventure, but there's the pain of life as well, isn't there? And guess what? God keeps redeeming us out of the bad stuff whilst he makes us whole. And if he will allow us over time, those things that have damaged us and wounded us and hurt us, bring fruit out into our character. As part of the process of redeeming us. Well, it just so happened that this was on a Sunday morning, and on the Monday afternoon, I was talking to a, uh, the, the voice specialist of the local county hospital. And uh, I, I said to her, I'd love to tell you a story, and I told her this story. <clears throat> and um, as it got to the bit where the man rushed in and, and cut her down and just saved her life. Um, she swung around from me and got her handkerchief out and I could see her mopping her eyes. After a moment, she turned back and said, I have a comment and a question to make. Okay. She said, my, my comment about the sense of being choked, clinically, I would, I would say that that is absolutely understandable, very, very predictable from trauma. We see that kind of thing happening all the time, even right back into infanthood. So that all makes sense from a medical point of view, that she should experience that. So that's interesting to know. So I have a question. Okay, what's the question? 
Well, she said, if Jesus is as powerful as you say he is, why did it take all those years for her to be healed if she was going to a church? To which I said, well, I've got uh, two comments to make to that, because that's how she talks. Uh, what are they? I said, first one is, good question. <laughs> what a good question. I said, the other comment is, you know, the church very often is really like a sleeping Cinderella. That's uh, forgotten. Forgotten the authority. Forgotten the power of the name of Jesus. Forgotten how to exercise it. So unfortunately, very often, we only walk in a fraction of everything that Jesus has made possible for us. Another story? Yeah? Another prayer day. And um, we operate in, in Pembrokeshire, North Pembrokeshire. This is a Welsh-speaking area on Africa time. Okay? So we have a starting time roughly. And, um, and, and people will still be coming in and out. Because we're in such a remote place, people travel a very, very long way to, uh, to get to us. And so people drift in uh, when they arrive. And we'd started our prayer day, and we, we were just starting our worship. People were still coming in, and I just cut uh, a song off in the middle and said, God, just give me a word for somebody here. Uh, you've come today, God says, looking for a miracle. And you're really holding on to faith that he's going to meet with you during our prayer day together. Okay, it goes roughly half past 10 till roughly three o'clock, hour for lunch in the middle. And um, I said, not only have you come trusting and having faith that you're going to meet with the Lord and he's going to do something, but it's your last chance because you know you haven't got anywhere to turn. And you know that actually... If he doesn't meet with you during the day, you're going to die because there's nothing left. So this is what the Lord says to you. He's not going to do it. He's not going to meet with you during today. Because he's already done it. He did it when you were on the way. And actually, if you just say, thank you, Lord, by faith, I receive that then the fullness of your healing will be made manifest for you as we go through the day. So if that's you and you know it's you, just say, thank you, Lord. Welcome it by faith. And then we're going to carry on. And so we did. That was it. People still came in. And we carried on with the worship, went through the morning, came to lunch break. And um, a lady at the back came running down the center um, as I was about to go out and said, excuse me, I just want to say to you that I think I'm that person that you, you spoke of. And I said, oh, that's great. She said, yeah, I really believe that was the word for me. Okay, did you say thank you? Yes. Did you receive by faith? Yeah. I said, well, that's great. So go with joy then. See you this afternoon. And walked off. And um, various, I mean, I didn't know who she was from, you know, and uh, various people have interviewed her since and said, what did you think when Roy said that? And, and she tends to say, I thought he was very cavalier. <laughs> anyway, that was it, and I, I didn't see any more of her. But a couple of days later, church leaders from where she was from started ringing me up, asking for me and saying, can you tell us about this incredible miracle? on Tuesday, and I said, Which, what? Well, how many healings were there on Tuesday? I said, loads, loads, which threw them a bit, 
And then he said, you, you know, the life or death one. I said, what? I'm sorry, I don't know what. Yes, you do. No, I don't. So they started telling me about this lady who was at the point of death, who was uh, on Tuesday, who, who on, on Wednesday and into Thursday was going to supermarkets, to the queues at the checkpoints, uh, you know, the checkouts, saying, excuse me, everyone, can I tell you who I am and what Jesus has done for me? I said, really? Yeah, and she started going to the pubs during the evening and doing the same, and um, yesterday afternoon she was in the city square calling on people, and I don't know about anything about it. Of course you do. I really don't. So um, the next prayer day came, and she and her friend came again. And uh, she's Greek, by Greek Cypriot by background, and uh, he, I think, is Ugandan by background, but I'm totally sure it was Uganda. Um, her, her friend, and they said, um, we'd like to tell everybody what God did. Okay. She said, it's, it's a good story. I said, okay. Tell it then, but I'm holding on to the microphone. <laughs> so she began to tell her story of how she had been ill uh, for, for many, many years. Now, when I say ill, I'm talking about bedridden for many, many years. But she's probably in her mid-40s for many, many years. And uh, for the last few months, about once every three or four weeks, she was rushed into high dependency because she was in organ failure and uh, they would just sort of try and recover her. Her friend, who she'd known since uh, they were at school, had, about nine months previously, tried to carry her into his car and just take her for a, a ride in the late spring to get some sunshine and fresh air. Had to pull at the side of the room, down side of the road, down 999, and uh, she had to be resuscitated. But now was told that organ failure had gone too far, and within a few days she was going to die, and she knew she was. But, and I'm, I'm sorry to mention it, but it's part of her story. She read The Grace Outpouring. And when she did, faith arose. And when her friend visited, she said, I want you to take a day off work and take me to Falder Brennan. And he laughed at her and said, take you somewhere. You can't even get to your bathroom. And, and she said, no, but I want you to take me there. But you, you, you know, and we've talked about this together, the doctors have said two or three days. Well, it's my dying wish. I want to go there. Where is it? Don't really know. So he went on the web and found out and said, it's 120 country miles away. I want to go there. And he said, well, I can't take you. I'm working. But it's my dying wish. Well, he rang the hospital because they, they knew him. He knew them. And a doctor came on and said, well, this is how it's going to work. She will die within two or three days now. If you take her in your car, she will die on the way. But she will die thinking that she's having a last wish met. If you don't take her, she will die anyway. But knowing that you haven't helped her with a dying wish. So the best of luck is you make your decision. So he didn't know what to do, but, but she said, I just want to be taken there because I believe if I go, uh, God's going to meet me there and heal me. And he was apparently head in hands business, saying, oh God, I don't even know if you exist, but if you do, um, do something to stop her being so silly. But she insisted. And he looked and saw that there was this daytime thing called uh, a prayer day. Um, the next day and thought, I could take up, I've got to take a day off work. And then he said the next thing was, and he burst into tears as he said this, she'll die in my car. I will lift her into my car and after a few miles she will die. I've got to turn round with my friend dead in the back of my car. I don't want to do this. 
So he said, well, look, I'll tell you what. I'll take the day off, and if you have really had a good night's sleep, I'll prepare the car, and I'll carry you out and lay you in it, and I will take you. So he arrived in the morning, hoping that she hadn't slept, and his hopes materialized. She hadn't slept all night. And he said, well, that's it then. I can't take you. But she wept and said, you've got to take me. I've got to go. I believe that if I go there, God will meet me during the day. So he packed the back of his car with cushions, pillows, and duvets to make it really soft, and carried her and laid her in the back. Set off for Falderbrennan, adjusting his mirror so he could see her, so that he would see when she died. He said, and he was driving through the tears. He knew that in the next day or two she was going to die. But now he knew that a few miles. But what he couldn't understand was that the further they drove, the stronger she looked. When they finally arrived, he went round to the back. He couldn't believe they'd made it to see if he could gently lift her out. And she said, actually, I'd like to sort of shuffle in if you would allow me to put my arm around your shoulder, would that be okay? Would you put your arm around me to help support me to see if I could shuffle in? And he said, you haven't been able to be on your feet for years. I just feel as though I could do this. And apparently they had just come in through the doorway when I said, stop. Here is the word, you think God's gonna meet with you, but he's not, he's already done it, say thank you. So she said, thank you. So when she'd come running down the center, um, the length of the hall, to tell me, and I said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that was the cavalier bit from her point of view, okay? <laughs> so she has been utterly unstoppable in telling anyone who listen about, uh, about what God has done for her. So what did she do? Well, initially she went everywhere she could to tell everyone. But then she thought, I wonder what would happen if I prayed for people who were sick. So she went to a pub, which is what you do, isn't it, if you're a Christian? <laughs> and said, I know you're a really busy city pub. Um, would you mind if I came in and asked anybody if anybody was sick? and sort of ask God to heal them to see what would happen. So I don't know what the publican was like, but he said yes. So she went on, and there were quite a number of people who said, yes, can I just pray? And she just prayed, and each of them were healed. And she thought, oh, this sounds pretty good. I wonder if I could do it more. Now here's the painful bit. She went to her own church and said, can I do this stuff here? No. And actually, we've had a leaders meeting and we'd rather you didn't worship here anymore. What do you mean? Yeah. The first people to doubt what God is doing very often the Christians. We wonder if you've really been ill at all all these years. We'd like to sort of suss out what's going on here. <coughs> so she thought, okay. So she found a room somewhere in the city, put a notice board outside. Anybody who's sick, if they come here, you never know, you might be healed. People started going there. People started getting healed. Now, it might have initially been people with a headache or a sprained wrist. But then it became really long-term, seriously ill people who were taken ill, long-term, seriously ill, and came out walking, laughing, filled with joy, and made whole. 
And so the next thing was, I wonder if I could teach other people to do what I'm doing. So she grabbed a few Christians and said, I want to do a little bit of teaching. Will you come along? Because I want you to help me and work with me. And next thing is, she's got a whole team of people. And they are seeing God do the most outrageous things. So, so here is a principle then. There's a very, very sound principle and a good biblical principle. Remember me telling you about the lady who was utterly transformed by discovering that God wasn't who she thought he was. He revealed his real self, self to her. And so she jettisoned the old idea of what God was like and said, I like you much better because he's lovely. But he also showed her who she is. So here's the principle. God begins to speak to us and say, I love you. And we allow his love to break out in our hearts. And the presence of his love begins to change us from the inside out. But when that happens, we suddenly discover that we are able to love people who we didn't love before. And some of the people we find ourselves loving are the most unlovely people to us that we could find. But something's happened to us. Because God's love at work within us is changing us. I know that I am loved. And I begin to find myself loving others. God says, I forgive you. And his forgiveness starts to find root in our hearts and in our lives. And as, our, as his forgiveness begins to change our hearts, don't we begin to find ourselves forgiving others more quickly, more deeply? Not only does he say that he loves us, but he astonishes us by saying, in my eyes, you are lovely. And sometimes we say, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> and perhaps particularly if, if we're a woman, we may find ourselves saying, I'm too young or I'm too old. I'm too heavy. I'm too thin. I'm too short. I'm too tall. I'm underweight, I'm overweight. God says, I find you lovely. And sometimes people find that, uh, that the words that people have spoken over us that are disparaging have, have taken hold. And our self-image is dominated by what we see in the mirror or by words that have been spoken over as judgments that have been made. But God says, when I look at you, I say, wow, you are lovely. And as that begins to work through our lives, don't we find ourselves looking at other people and saying, wow, there's a real loveliness in that person. My wife and daughter came back from a winter's visit to Siberia. My wife saying to me, guess why I didn't go, by the way. Well, it was Siberia and it was winter. So they, my wife said to me, I have met the most beautiful girl I've met in my life. She is just incredibly beautiful. 
And I said to her, oh, so what's she like? Blonde, dark, uh, color of eyes, what, what? And she looked at me. Oh, she said. I had not thought of about that, like that at all. She had just met this, this young woman. She is the most incredibly beautiful young woman I have ever met in my life. And she's seen a, a loveliness, a beauty in her. Well, I'm really pleased because that person she was speaking of is now our daughter-in-law. So that was pretty good. But it had nothing to do with exterior experience. Uh, experience uh, sorry, exterior appearance. She'd seen something lovely, something beautiful within this young woman. But that's how God looks at us. He made us to be beautiful. Because he couldn't do anything else, because he is beauty. And he creates beauty. And it doesn't matter what your external appearance might happen to be like. That's not where the value lies. Within you, uniquely, he has planted beauty. And when he looks at you, he sees the beauty. And he says, you are beautiful. You are lovely to me. And it's that verdict that is the truth. You are beautiful. I see the beauty in you. And he rejoices over us. And when that does begin to work through in our hearts, <coughs> we find ourselves looking at others, and suddenly finding ourselves saying, wow, gosh, who would have thought that in that, if you like, physical package, there could be such treasure, such beauty. Just look at what that person carries. It's a principle of the kingdom that when God ministers to us, we are changed and healed, even though we're unaware of the process. And therefore, there is a fruit that comes out. And it reflects the reality of what's going on as God is at work in our lives. Now, you know this story. It's from Matthew 18. Again, you don't particularly need to turn to it. You know the story. Um, Peter had come up and said to Jesus, how often will I forgive my brother um, who sins against me? Uh, as many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, this is to do with forgiveness. And when Peter asked this question, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me, or my sister if you like, immediately he says this, he betrays his lack of understanding about the Father's forgiveness for us. Here's the question, how deep does God's forgiveness for you run? When do you test that forgiveness to breaking point? What are the limits? Jesus says, no, not seven times. How about 77 times? So, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Well, that's pretty good so far then, isn't it? 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a tiny amount. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, ma in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then these chilling words from Jesus. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is pretty frightening stuff from Jesus. It's a question about whether we allow the principles of the kingdom of God to be at work within our hearts. So we discover that God loves us, we begin to love other people. We begin to find that we have peace with God. So we become peaceful towards other people. We hear him say, I find you lovely in my sight. And we begin to see loveliness in other people. He says to us, I forgive you. We need to make sure that in view of the debt that has been cancelled against us, at such enormous cost that the Father should allow the Son to lay down his life to ransom us. That we should be finding ourselves freely forgiving our brother from the heart. I continue to find it challenging. Uh, the number of, of Christians who say to me, I will never forgive so-and-so. Why is that? Because they really hurt me. Okay. And, and, and just how do you think you have hurt the Father? they'd really have to show very, very clearly that they were different people before I'd forgive them. Okay. Did your Heavenly Father say that to you? Or did he just say, I freely forgive? I'm not going to forgive them. I don't see why I should. Well, this is why, because your Heavenly Father has forgiven you. Yeah, but you don't know how deeply I've been hurt. <laughs> now, I don't say this to them, but sometimes I like to say to them, well, actually, maybe I do, because we are all seriously hurt, either by things that have been done or not done, or by words that have been spoken, or sometimes not spoken. We know what it's like to be deeply hurt. Deeply offended, deeply wounded. But you know that, that sense of such pain, such woundedness, sometimes such brokenness through what is wrong, which is like an insuperable mountain, an unclimbable mountain to us, is a tiny reflection of how hurt our Heavenly Father is. I sin.
And yet he says, you come to me, you ask me, I will freely and glad you, gladly forgive you. How, how deep does that go? Seven times? Eight times? Seventy-seven? No. All the way through, completely set free, complete new start. If we believe that's how he works, how can we not forgive those who have wounded and hurt others? My father has, uh, it's quite a number of years now since my father died. And the last time I spent with him, just days before he went into his final coma, um, I invited him to pray. And he did as he was laid there in bed, very, very weak. And I was amazed that he was willing to pray. And then I was thunderstruck because he prayed and said, I thank you, Father, that my son Roy has forgiven me for the way I've treated him. And he stopped, opened his eyes, looked at me and said, you have, haven't you? Well, talk about put somebody on the spot. And I had lots of reasons why I might say, no. That would have got my own back. Our last conversation, no. There were lots of good reasons why I might have done that. For the life of me, I could not. I didn't even have to think about it. I, I couldn't possibly do that. So I said, yes, of course I have. And that was our last conversation before he died. My challenge then was with God. I had to ask him to forgive me for lying. Because it challenged. Coming the way that it did, it, it challenged how far I'd forgiven him. Um, over many years, I had dealt with numerous things and chosen and battled and wrestled to forgive him. But to, to forgive a sin is one thing. To forgive a person from the heart who has done many, many things to, to cause a lot of damage in your life, that's a different matter. That's what he was asking. I would love to, and I never will, I, I would have to have said to him, why did you think I'd forgiven you many years ago? And I, I had to, to wrestle with that, and uh, several weeks later, uh, within a coma, he died, and, uh, and that was that. But um, this issue of forgiving somebody from the heart is very different to forgiving a sin that has been committed against us. It's not that God looks at you and me and says to us, well, here's the list. A lot longer than this. Okay. Here's the list of all the sins. I've gone through them one by one, and I've forgiven you every one. It's not that. He just says, I take you, I forgive you everything. But I forgive you, the person. Roy, you are forgiven totally. It's all dealt with, all taken on the cross. All paid for. There is now no condemnation for you. It's the person. So now we're okay together. So how is it that sometimes those people who really hurt us and wounded us, we forgive them for the event... But we refuse to forgive them as a person. 
everything is okay between us. You know, there's that, that English idiom, isn't there? Uh, I forgive you, but I'll never forget. What a load of nonsense. If you never forget, then you're not going to forgive them, are you? You can't do that. To forgive the person from the heart. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, forgive the sin. It's your brother, it's the person from the heart. I forgive you from the heart. We are in a wholesome, free, completely new relationship now. It's all gone, it's all dealt with. And actually, everything to do with the past, it's all cleansed. We're going to, to carry on now as though nothing has ever happened. Hang on. Can't do that because it has happened. So how can we cope with it then? So with my father, I could work my way through the various things and try and make sense of them and deal with them and forgive him. Of course, I found when I was a father that I wasn't the perfect father I wanted to be. But to forgive him so that everything, not to forgive the damage, all the stuff I could name, not to, uh, to forgive those things is one thing, but to forgive him was quite another. And I had to deal with that, even as I went into the grief over losing him. I'll say this honestly, I didn't expect to grieve at all. I was glad that something very tough was over at last. I was crippled with grief and with pain. How do we deal with the fact that somebody has hurt us and wounded us through actions, through words, um, psychological abuse, manipulation and so on? How do we deal with all that? Because we can't pretend that it didn't happen. So how can we forgive from our heart? The simple answer is we cannot. Because without Jesus, we cannot do anything. But with him, we can do anything. So how can we do this? We bring our helplessness to God. And we lay our helplessness down before him. And we say, this, this is where I want to be. This is how I want to be. I have no capacity to do this at all. So I cast this upon you. I'm, I'm unwilling to stay where I am, but I can't do anything. Will you please come and help me? Okay, I'm personalizing this a little bit because it, it's easier to express it. Um, amongst the, the resources out there, you, you'll see there's a CD, A Great Deliverance. It's a terrible title. Uh, really desperately needs changing. But it's the story of a major car accident that I was in years ago with my family. And my, my children were little at the time. And, and it, it, it's an amazing story of uh, how God did something quite supernatural, physically seen, um, an, an extraordinary thing. And, and saved us. Um, but I remember being in the hospital when my son was, was brought back for the umpteenth time from the operating theater. And uh, six years old, with metal bits sticking out of him and pipes, and he was on a rack, and uh, of course coming around from the anesthetic. And I, I was waiting for him, my daughter and, uh, and wife were each in a different clinic being seen. And I, I'd chosen to be there to greet him. But I was in a wheelchair, unable to get out. I couldn't reach him when he was brought in. I couldn't touch him. I couldn't hold him. Um, and my anger with a driver who was drunk, who'd crashed into us head on at 120 miles an hour on the wrong side of the road. My anger knew no bounds. And I couldn't cope with the anger. And I wanted to be able to forgive him, but how could I forgive him? Because of the destruction in my family. But we're talking about multiple major injuries. And, uh, and what began to arise in me was a desire 
to see him suffer as much as in particular he'd caused suffering to my little children six and two and I really didn't know how to cope with my anger and what I saw as my desire for justice which was that he should suffer in the way that he'd introduced such suffering into my family I couldn't cope with the anger but my family couldn't cope with my anger either I just didn't know what to do I remember crying out to God saying lightning striking him from heaven would be too quick and I know I shouldn't be like this and there is nothing I can do and I tried all sorts of things um, I renounced this anger in the name of Jesus it didn't make any difference at all um, I refused to be this angry person that I am I really meant it but it didn't make any difference at all And then in a moment of clarity, I realized, and I said, Father, I cannot cope with this anger. I can't control it. It's controlling me. And I don't want to be who I am. I don't want to be in this position. There is nothing I can do about it at all. So I bring my weakness to you and I acknowledge it and ask you to do something. Will you please do deal with it? And whilst I didn't hear him say anything at all in terms of anything audible I mean in that instant it was dealt with and he took it it's that weakness an acknowledgement of that weakness come back it's a principle of the kingdom what I receive I give away What he puts in me is worked out in me and the same stuff flows out. This, this is a sign of the rivers of living water that flow into our innermost being. That the affirmation that God puts into me results in me affirming others. That the joy he puts in me becomes attractive to others and I can point them towards the source of the joy. He puts healing within me. I want to, I find myself overflowing with compassion for those who are sick. He has forgiven me to the nth degree. There's nothing left that's uncovered. The blood of Jesus paid for every sin. My guilt is gone. How in view of that can I not forgive the person? Who hurts or wounds me? How dare I be offended? But I am offended. So I have to ask God to help me. We were just going into chapel one morning for... Um, for morning prayers and, and Daphne turned to me and said oh I've got to tell you there's, there's a couple on holiday who are coming to see us they're, they're going to be in morning prayers and I've said we'll talk to them afterwards oh okay went through morning prayers so who are the couple oh I don't think they're here oh, that's fine and we both got very very full mornings meeting people and so on but one of the team members came over uh, about half past eleven nearly 12 o'clock and said oh there's a couple that are on holiday they've come very very late um, they're hoping they might say hello oh okay so as soon as we were free we went over to see them and um, as we were over on our way across to, to the meeting room um, Daphne explained to me that they were on holiday from somewhere in England that both of them were vicars but she was disabled in a wheelchair where she'd been many many years and that's all she knew. So we walked over, opened the door, and the moment we opened the door, we just stopped and looked at each other, uh, Daphne and I, and grinned. Because the room was full of the presence of God, full of the presence of God. 
So we went in and there was a husband standing there and there was she in a wheelchair. And we went and said, hi, how are you? And, and he said, let me, let me just tell you what's happened. Um, they're, they're in Nottingham now, I think, uh, the parish church there. But um, he, he said, we've come down with our children on a holiday, I don't know, maybe early 40s again. Um, children, late teens, early 20s. Um, and um, it was raining yesterday, it doesn't happen very often in Wales, but uh, it rained. And so the, the, the young folks had gone off for a, a walk. Um, she obviously can't do that, so he put her in the car. They went for a bit of a ride around in the rain. Found their way into the beautiful valley uh, where we are. Um, she said, I need a loo. And they saw a little car park with a loo, so they pulled in. And as they did, they noticed an entrance at the side and a steep drive and a sign that said Falter Brennan, although they didn't know how to pronounce it. And he said to her, that's funny. That, that name seems to sort of mean something, but I have no idea what. Got back in the car, carried on their journey, went home, rain stopped. That was it. That evening, um, his mobile phone went, which is quite amazing in Pembrokeshire. And there was a friend saying, are you on holiday in North Pembrokeshire? Yeah. There's a place near you, you know, I think called Falder Brennan. You ought to, to go there and see, see it. Why? God does all sorts of stuff there. And he thought, oh, no, please. Um, you know, we had decades of disappointment with that kind of stuff. Uh, so he didn't tell his wife. About an hour later, phone went. Are you in North Pembrokeshire? Did you, have you heard of a place called Falderbrand? So, but the third time was a family member who was a Christian who said, you know, I really feel you ought to find this place. I said, well, we know where it is. So uh, he managed to get hold of a number from somewhere, I don't know where, rang and uh, spoke to my wife eventually and explained their situation. So, and he said, I really want to protect her. I don't want to put her in a, a place of disappointment or whatever. Could we just come up and say hello? Fine. No problem at all. So he explained the story. Uh, so I looked at her. The place is full of the presence of God. And I looked at her and said, what's your deepest desire? And to his amazement, she said, I had a dream last night. And in the dream, two people took hold of a hand each and said, in the name of Jesus, get up. And I got up. And then I went back to the holiday home, collected our kids, and for the first time in our lives, the four of us went for a walk. And I said, I've got good news for you. And Daphne and I took hold of a hand each, in the name of Jesus, stand up. And with a bit of help, she stood. And she was shaking. And I said, okay, find your balance. Now in Jesus' name, you're going to take a few steps. And she held onto us like I don't know what. And very, very carefully and slowly, one foot moved. She got her balance. Come in the name of Jesus, next foot moved. So we walked her across the room, and uh, she began to find it easier. I said, okay, I'm letting go, but Daphne is going to hold on to one of your arms. I began to pick up, and her husband's mouth is sort of O-shaped. And then suddenly it starts to pick up, and then Daphne lets go, and a minute later, she is running around the room and laughing and crying. And then she goes across to her husband and they hug each other. And I look at them and they're shaking like that, both of them. And I say, wow, Lord, you've really put your spirit on them. And I swear I sense God saying, don't be an idiot. They're both in shock. <laughs> so I said, I think you need a cup of tea. She said, I'll make it. I've never made a cup of tea for my husband. I'll make it. I said, okay, but you have to go up and downstairs to do that. Doesn't matter, I'm going to do it. And she did. Well, that was on a Friday. On the Saturday, they were leaving Pembrokeshire and uh, going home. But we got the call later that uh, the Sunday service, she purposefully went in late 
so that everybody would see her walk in and sit down. And the evening service was a little bit freer and uh, he invited her to tell her story and they invited people to respond for prayer. All over the church, people were getting healed. Power of God broke out. That's how the kingdom of God works. We receive and we give away. We receive and we give away. But the amazing thing is that as we give away, it's multiplied. So we need to say, Father, would you please multiply everything you've put within us as we give it away? Keep pouring into us, Father. And then as we give it away to others, multiply in its giving, Father. Let forgiveness flood our hearts, Father, that we may be free to forgive others. Let peace flood our hearts, Father, that we may be peacemakers towards others. Let justice and the desire for justice flood our hearts, that we may be just towards others. Flood us with your righteousness, that we may treat others righteously. Help us to see afresh just how lovely and beautiful we are in your sight. And then transform the way we look at others, Father. Let healing flow through every part of our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our spirits. And then release healing through others, through us to others. Father, multiply your work. Multiply your work, Father. Cause the good news to run. Cause your kingdom to break out in us, but through us as well, Father. Would you like to stand with me?